Welcome to In Conversation, a podcast from Black and Bookish, where we celebrate Black literary arts. I'm your host, Antoinette Scully, and each week I interview Black authors and creators about their work and inspirations, all at the intersection of reading, writing, and activism. This week's episode features Jay Coles, author of Tyler Johnson Was Here and the forthcoming novel, Things We Couldn't Say, which drops September 21st. In addition to writing books for middle grades and young adult audiences, Jay is a composer of the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, and a professional musician living in Munich, Indiana. In this episode, we cover several key topics, making time for space and healing, how to navigate what to share and post on social media, how the publishing industry monetizes Black pain, and writing fiction that reflects the real world and celebrates Black joy. I'd like to issue a content warning for my listeners. This episode was recorded on April 16th, 2021, on the heels of gun violence in Indianapolis and includes a discussion on gun violence and police violence against Black and brown bodies. I have a whole list of questions, (laughs) but I want you to know that like, it's really ridiculous of us to pretend that we live in this world without addressing or even holding space for how either of us could be feeling in the turmoil that's been happening just in the past two weeks, right? Yeah. So um, I can tell you, I have been quite weepy for the past couple of days. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to even, you know, want to do anything. And so I also want to let you know that I see you and that's the kind of space we're all in. And yeah. I want space for you for that. So Thank if we you. don't get to the author questions, like, <laughs> you know, like I just want to let you know that, that it, it would be ridiculous, right? For us to even try to have that conversation. Sure. Especially today. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, I want to invite you to feel as comfortable as possible and to, um, you know, ask me questions if you want. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I do have some questions for you and I, and I was hoping that, you know, something as, um, I always think of it as small, but I realize it's not really small. Um, but where you are, right, influences, where you are physically and, and locally influences your work. And can you talk a little bit about that, um, especially because of the notion of how it's influenced your writing even now? So. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I currently live in Muncie, Indiana, uh, and I'm from uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, where things we couldn't say this book right here um, takes place. Um, And obviously like um, if you've read or ever heard of Tyler Jones was here, like my first, my debut novel um, that's about like police brutality and racism. Obviously like part of the conversation that we're having today still like continually. Um, And so anyway, I, I branched out and tried to write something completely different with things we couldn't say because I got so tired of just like how real and raw, like the reality is of like, yeah, we're, we're never going to get out of this. Like if it feels like we're never going to get out of this, like darkness of this cycle of police brutality and uh, the brutalization of black and brown bodies, like just in the street. Um, and so and I say that from this very like personal perspective, I mean, it's a very communal, you know, situation because we exist in, you know, the same communities. Right. Um, but for me, it's also like a, a deeply personal thing because the reason why I wrote Tyler Johnson was here in the first place was because I witnessed um, my cousin lose his life to police violence um, like firsthand when I was a little boy. And so, um, yeah, the trauma that came from like the community that I grew up in and witnessing that in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, you carry that with you, <laughs> you know, you carry that with you throughout your life. Um, it, it's not a thing that like, um, you're able to just kind of like separate from your person or like, 
uh, from your mentals, you, you carry that forward with you and you, you're constantly grieving that, especially when you have to see it all the time in the media. Um, you know, it just brings up those feelings and those those moments um, from the past. You know, like when we when we were seeing what happened to uh, Dante Wright or to Adam Toledo, um, we're remembering Brianna Taylor, we're remembering Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice. You know, it's not like those people have ever been forgotten, but it's like, um, yeah, we just have to, we're adding, you know, like, and I actually talk about this and, and things we can say, we're just adding like names to, to the, this backpack that we're going to carry the rest of our lives. Um, and we're going to, we're going to continue to grieve the rest of our lives. And, um, unfortunately, you know, just like, I think earlier this week, there was some, there was an, um, an instance of police brutality, like in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Indianapolis. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely feels like a very personal um, thing. And I want to, every time I write, I want to uh, be able to tap into that personal um, journey as well as what I'm seeing like in the real like world around me. Yeah, I know that was probably like a, a really long-winded way of <laughs> answering that question, but. <laughs> no, I think it's great because it, it's, um, having grown up myself in a freedom town from Eatonville, Florida. And so the town and the place that that holds, even in the literary space has a lot to do with the work that I, that I do. And so I, I understand when, when an author says, this is, you know, the, the parts that I take with me, I put into my stories and, and because your stories are so personal and, and because like you say, carry this with us all the time. Like, when do you put it down? Right. When do you, as an author who's writing in this medium, uh, take time and space to say, I'm not going to carry this today or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out for the weekend. Yeah. You know, how do you, when do you take that time for yourself? Right. That's an amazing question because I mean, I am just, you know, having to figure that out, like even this week, unfortunately, like I had been off of social media for a, a while because I just wanted to take a step back just in general because of um, working on projects and just been really busy. But the, the one day I, I hop on my Twitter, I see all this stuff, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, like, you know, I'm grateful that like we now have the technology to be able to report that stuff. Um, and so we're able to, to kind of hyper focus on it um, as a nation because of the power of social media. But the unfortunate side of social media is that now, like, again, we're having to actively watch people who look like us, like die, you know, from the hands of police officers or white supremacy, like over and over again. Um, And everyone's just constantly retweeting it and sharing it like into your timeline. And then it gets so emotionally like exhausting to the point where you're just like, I don't, I'm hitting a wall. Like, I don't know what to do. And for me, uh, what I've had to give myself permission to log out, um, to disengage, to um, try to do other things, you know, as as hard as that is or how, or as, as difficult as that might sound, um, something as simple as like, um, I'm, I'm a drummer, so I'm a, I'm a musician. So I played, uh, drums probably, um, a couple of times a week just to clear my head or just to process things. And so one thing I did was like, I just took some time to just go play some music, you know, and, and, and was drumming in my drum room that I have in my house. Um, or I'll read a book that, you know, is about, um, joy or something that like, I just really need to hear in that moment. Um, and I'm going to take a second to promote this anthology that I am a part of called black boy joy, um, (laughs) edited by Kwame Mbalia. Um, and yeah, I wrote a story in that anthology, um, about black boy joy and, you know, and it's a much needed story that I, that I, um, that I believe that young people need, but, also I needed and still need. And so reading stories like that helps me kind of, um, it, it kind of compensates for the mental toll that, that being on social media and seeing, you know, black and brown bodies constantly being brutalized there, um, over and over again. Um, so just have to give myself permission to just say, you know, it's okay to log out. It's okay to not have to send that tweet condemning, uh, immediately. I can just share someone else's post and, 
I can come back to it later and have a conversation when I'm ready. You know, I don't have to give more of myself in the moment when I'm still trying to grieve and process myself. And I know you work with students um, and you write in this, this um, age range. Do you, my question is, do you think that sharing this kind of stuff on social media actually helps us push the narrative? Or do you think that, you know, I see a lot of people that say, don't share that video. You know, a lot of people are talking about, you know, don't, no one needs to see Adam, you know, lose his life to police violence. Is Do you have a feeling that it depends on the circumstance? It depends on the, you know, the area, this, the situation, this is happening in Chicago. Um, you know, this morning there was uh, gun violence in Indianapolis or at least last night. So um, yeah, how do we navigate whether people should see it or not see it? Who are we saving, yeah. you know? Exactly. And that becomes a tricky thing. Right. And and I wish I had this like really profound answer for that. But I think like, to me, I'm always on the side of um, like, who is sharing what and why? Right. Like, um, I know that there are people that I follow or people that uh, I don't follow, but who somehow sometimes get retweeted into my, my timeline. And I'm like, I know I don't trust this person because I know their character. <laughs> you know, I've known something about their character before. And so for them to share this video, it probably is more of them wanting to prioritize like black trauma over actually caring about black life, you know? Um, and I have a very gut, like a very visceral like reaction to that because I'm like, I know that this person or this group of people or whatever, um, don't actually care about what they're retweeting. They're doing it because they don't want to be seen as like the, the author or the, or the, the person that stays silent you know, and unfortunately, sometimes, you know, those people who only if that's their only step of action is to retweet the video of someone getting killed, you know, um, that actually does more harm than good. <laughs> um, and I would I want to see you take some some steps of action to to, to be anti racist, I want to see um, what what you're doing to um, prioritize your anti-racism, um, being against and fighting white supremacy everywhere, including in yourself. <laughs> like, I, I want to see that. Like, I don't want to see you retweeting um, the video of um, Adam Toledo or, you know, insert other, you know, person here. Um, I want to see the work that you're putting in to fight against the system. That to me is more important than you sharing that video. Yeah, I, I wholly hear you. You know, taking away from that, that, everyone has to be able to do their part as best they can, you know? And, and I think that you're in a brilliant place to be able to use your time and your talent to put these stories into the world. What can people who are not in that same place be able to do? Um, is it just reading the books? Is it just um, taking integral anti-racist courses? Like how do we, um, yeah, I meet a lot of people who, are just waking up to this sure. this year or last year or, and it's hard to navigate that with feeling like you're cared for because we've been navigating it for decades. And then you want to bring someone else into that fold. And I wonder how, how do you tend to bring people into that fold? If you find that they're waking up now, um, especially from reading your books or from the work that you do outside of that. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent question too. I mean, I think to me, I mean, that's happened certainly in the last year, like people, friends of mine, those friends of mine who, you know, I've never ever heard them talk about race or, or want to have conversations that are very racially charged <laughs> um, or very um, even political, you know, they're usually white. Um, <laughs> and I've had to challenge them on some areas to, you know, speak up and to speak out and to to engage with some of these things. And, and they've asked a similar question, like, well, what can we do if I'm just now like becoming more aware or I'm just now kind of letting the scales fall from my eyes and seeing what's really been happening all along, <laughs> you know? Um, and I encourage them simply. I was like, yeah, like who are you following on your social media? Like who are you elevating? What voices are you boosting? Who are you reading? You know, what are you watching? <laughs> you know, like um, those kinds of things. How are you voting? You know, because um, it, it it's something like simple. Like, so there's some simple steps you can take, but there's also some like deeply like um, 
systemic and systematic, like things that we have to repent of as people, you know, by letting go of things and unlearning things that we were taught in our youth (laughs) and, and um, elevate the voices of people who um, are putting in the work for change and justice and reform and, um, and revolution. And so, um, yeah, my, my advice is always pointing to people, pointing people to like, um, voices like, um, Ajema Oluo or, um, people who are, who I know I are doing research and putting content out there, books and, and social media posts and articles, um, to enrich and to, to, to teach us more about, um, where we're at as a society and how to, to fight against white supremacy and, the, and um, the roots of white supremacy everywhere, including in, you know, our homes and in our friendships and in our families um, and in our schools <laughs> um, and every other level. So um, those are some of the things that I point people towards. Yeah. Let's talk about the schools. I want to know um, you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. I want yeah. To- <laughs> yeah what, how do you have time for this <laughs> so not anymore not anymore i'm actually a full-time writer right now but i did uh, i worked at a middle school and got to work with seventh eighth graders in english classroom then i worked with 10 graders in high school for one year um and then i um am currently um technically a full-time writer but also doing some work for ball state university some freelance stuff with ball state university which is where i graduated from mm-hmm. um, so it's actually like right, the campus is right next door to my house. So it's, it's a really, really, really cool um, place. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed getting to work with young people because I deeply believe that they are the light of the world, that they are the future. They're the people who are going to replace me someday as the, as the author who is on this kind of Zoom call. Um, hopefully by then we're doing more in-person things and, and whatnot. But um um, but also Zoom will probably be around for a long time. Um, they're going to be the the people who are um, political leaders and presidents and the agents of change. And so I want to do my part to, in any way, shape, or form, be able to to leave a touch on our, our lives about um, you know the history of, of the Black experience and you know present day of Black experience, especially for those students who you know, are white or, um, have never, you know, um, been told about, um, white supremacy in their homes or, or racism in their homes. Right. Like, um, those are oftentimes like there were some of the best conversations with, with young people when, when I, when I taught them, um, just getting to hear, you know, like how they were processing. Um, cause we, we read the house on Mango street. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that, but that's Sanders Cisneros. Um, and get them to talk about like other cultures than like the one that they're used to or the one that they they're part of, whether they're, they grew up in getting to see like these light bulbs kind of like, you know, turn on in their heads, being able to be awakened to, Oh wait, this world is so much bigger than just myself and my, my little family and our, our values. But people have, people are different and, you know, and, and, and there's diversity and, and how, how can we all like pursue love and love each other? And um, I believe that young people are really, really good at doing that. <laughs> you know, they're really, really good at seeing differences and appreciating differences and loving um, those differences in each other. Um, the adults, on the other hand, not so much. And so that's also partly why I write for young people still, you know, I don't, I don't have any plans on writing for adults anytime soon because I believe, um, that young people are really going to be the ones on the front lines, um, in the, this, uh, revolution for love. Do you find that, um, being able to write for kids and for young adults, um, do you feel that you have to hide your messages in there or do you feel that it gets to be way more explicit at this age range? I know that sometimes when you read, um, adult literature, it's sort of like, tucked mm. into the corners of it so that people have these epiphanies while they're in it. And then I feel like when I'm reading young adult lit, it's like, bam, it's right in your yeah. face. So how do you feel about those kinds of moments or, you know, things? Issues? Yeah. Yeah. I never found myself having to like sugarcoat 
or um, water down any of those real issues, especially like the book, like House on Mingle Street, which mentions like abuse, you know, even because I, I know that a lot of those kids know, you know, and, 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 and can empathize. And um, like, again, like I mentioned earlier that when I was nine years old, I witnessed my cousin lose his life in the middle of the street. You know, like I, there wasn't a single book that I read that, you know, um, made me feel seen or like heard in that way, like on, on a, such a, such a deep, deep level when I was nine years old. Right. But if I had a book like Tyler Dunst was here when I was nine years old, or maybe even the hate you give, um, you know, um, maybe I couldn't fully understand what was going on in those books or understand what I was reading all the way. But I think maybe a year or two after that, I've been able to like heal in a way because I had a book that like talked about my experience. Um, and so what I've noticed and what I believe to be true by young people is that like, they can handle it, <laughs> you know, they can handle it because if they're not going to um, read books like mine, like Tyler Johnson, Tyler Johnson was here or things we couldn't say or the Hey You Give or Dear Martin or, or whatever, they're going to just do it anyway. They're going to find ways to like research. Anyway, they have technology, they have phones, they have laptops, they have Chromebook, you know, tablets. They're going to find a way to, to consume, you know, the reality of these issues anyway. And so why not talk about those in a school with, with adults who, you know, can be trusted and who, who can walk them through it in a, in a very like sensitive and loving way. That was a real challenge though. I mean, the hate you give, I read it the year it came out and it, it broke me for a little bit. I mean, and mostly because I grew up in those spaces where, you know, oh, you're one of the smart black people. So you get to go to all the mm -hmm. honors classes and then you have to decide what kind of person you might be at home or in your black community. Mm -hmm. And I can say that that for me as an adult <laughs> reading that and, and feeling connected to it at that point versus, you know, the news that you get of someone being murdered or most recent protest or, you know, being as someone who's personally been tear gassed at a protest, right? Like mm -hmm. those things are really different than the eloquence of literature. Yeah. And how do you navigate as an author, the eloquence of literature with the stark, deep reality of life? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's a great question, first of all, because I was just talking about this with someone, I think yesterday. Um, and the best way that I can answer that question is by pointing to both of these books here um, is because I was telling someone yesterday that if this book is about how hard it is to be black. This book right here is about the joys of being black. Um, and the reason why I like create a sort of like dichotomy with the, these two books because I wanted like people to see that I, that we, you know, are more than trauma. We're more than, you know, um, our pain, but unfortunately like in the publishing world and not to get too into, you know, all of that, but publishing is, we're going to get into it. Let's get yeah, into it. <laughs> really like prioritize and monetize off of our pain um, in some ways that, you know, are deeply, deeply problematic. And so when I was writing in my, my sophomore novel, Things We Couldn't Say, I wanted to be mindful of that. I didn't want to like write um, just a traumatizing story all over again about um, black pain, you know? Um, obviously there's some hope in Tower Dunce was here. It's not all dark and, and depressing, I promise, but it it's definitely still a very heavy story um, with very heavy themes. Um, that require a lot of like mental energy and emotional energy. Um, and so for things we couldn't say, I, I did want to like approach it, approach my writing and approach um, the story with more of like a perspective of, I'm going to talk about like my day to day. You know, I want to write a, a story about a black boy. who's just living out his life. You know, of course he's aware of like the trauma that he's experiencing being a black person in America and being in, in Indiana, <laughs> you know, red state. Um, but also like he's still pursuing first love and he has friends and he's nerding out and he's talking about his favorite band Paramore, which is also my favorite band. Um, and there's more to him than just like his struggles. Um, and so I want to, so in the, in the, the writing part of it, I wanted to 
You know, I wanted this book to feel like you're reading a book like by John Green, you know, where you're just following these teenagers being teenagers. Um, and it's not all about like how hard it is to be them, <laughs> you know? So. Yeah, totally. I, and I, uh, I also love that kind of aspect where we get to be ourselves in these spaces just because we exist in these spaces. Um, and I think about that versus the publishing industry where it is really hard to exist in these spaces. Yep. And, you know, you've got, um, two very prominent books under your belt in major publishing. And I want to know how you feel coming through this. Yeah. Um, what are some of your struggles that you've dealt with? Yeah, I'm, I want to go ahead and say, I'm extremely grateful that I have this platform and that I have, you write two books with, with major publishing companies. Um, and not a lot of people have that experience, especially not a lot of marginalized people. And that is unfortunate. Um, because there's a lot of, um, us out there with stories on our hearts that we, you know, have been trying to get out there. And unfortunately publishing is not giving us the space to do that. Um, or at least not in the ways that we want. Um, and so it's not been an easy journey to be here, um, for sure. Um, but I'm grateful nonetheless to be here. And so, um, this book right here has gone, it, it has gone through a very, very long journey <laughs> in the publishing world. And so I'll kind of like condense it all in a little um, couple minutes here. Um, so after Tyler Johnson was here, came out, I was booked with events. So I was going, I was traveling all over the place. I was speaking at every, you know, everywhere. Um, and that was really cool. Like, I, you know, it was really cool to you know, have publishing companies send me limos and, and drive me around places. You know, it was like a really cool like experience um, being like a, an author with a book that like people really liked and, and it resonated with. And, but after there was a point where I just hit like this, like this wall and I got super, super depressed. Um, and it took me a long time to really pinpoint what, what I was so like, what sent me to that dark place. Um, and I realized that the thing that sent me to the dark place was having to constantly, constantly talk about race, <laughs> constantly talk about my pain and my story um, and have to do Q&A after Q&A where people were like, so tell me about like police brutality. Tell me about like racism. I was like, just read the book, you know, and it got to a point where I was like, I, I think people believe that I, this is all I am. I am just like this robot who's going to spew out my trauma every event that I do, you know, no one's, you know, no one was putting me on like at the big festivals. Like every time I got invited to one of those festivals, I wasn't on the fan fiction panel or the like movies panel or whatever. I was on the race panel, you know? And so it was kind of like, it's got exhausting. And so I, I went into a dark place and I gave up writing for a long time because I was like, I just can't enter into that space anymore. Um, I don't want to be actually traumatized by, <laughs> you know, publishing and being in this space. Um, so I, I need a break. Um, and so as a way to write myself out of that, like dark place, started writing things we couldn't say. And when I finished the first draft of it, I was, I was with little Brown at the time. Uh, and they saw the book and, um, yeah, some, some things happened. A couple editors that I had left, <laughs> um, and eventually we had to kind of like, leave with with the manuscript to go somewhere else um so we went back on submission with the book and luckily like there was a lot of bites people really resonated with the book and, and loved the book but there were times where people um that i'm that will remain nameless because i don't want to get into some mess on twitter with people but um <laughs> there were some editors who were remain nameless who said things like you know this isn't um black enough or this isn't this doesn't have enough like pain or trauma attached to it um we need more of this more of that we need less of, of this um the, the light parts of the book um where these kids were just being kids and or teenagers being teenagers um and i actually had to like fight against that in some ways that was more trauma uh, more traumatic than you know um you would think and Eventually, I landed with Scholastic with uh, my editor being David Levithan, 
who enthusiastically believed in the book and believed in my story and believed in me as a person. Um, and I immediately felt at home there. And I've not had a single issue with him or with anyone, um, a part of the scholastic team where they, they've never said anything like that to me, <laughs> but unfortunately as a part of the journey, and this was true with Tyler Jones was here too. Like people saying like, Oh, we need more, we need more pain because this is going to sell if, you know, just, um, if it's just like talking more and more about it, like how hard it is, like being black or all the tra traumatic things that we experience or, um, or being queer or whatever, those kinds of things too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I really had to like advocate for myself a lot um, and to be my, my own best advocate in publishing because I mean, my agent, she's great, you know, and she does her job, like, you know, no other, like she's amazing. But I think so at the end of the day, like it's, it's my work. Right. And I have to be my own like best advocate because no one understands these characters or my story or me like better than myself, you know? Um, and so unfortunately, like that is not even just my experience, but that is a lot of my friends experience too, of like, you know, trying to go on submission or trying to get published and they're being told like, Oh, this isn't black enough, or this isn't whatever this enough. Um, you need more of this. And, you know, we're kind of having to make a decision. Like if we want a book deal, we have to say yes, you know, or, um, you know, if we're lucky enough to have more than one offer where someone isn't, you know, saying that to us, we'll go with them. But unfortunately, like with the way the industry is and, and the way that it's structured to profit off of like our pain, you don't see a whole lot of books about black or brown joy coming out. Um, it's unfortunate. Yeah. And when you do see it, it's, it's so special, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, you know, here's that one book about <laughs> black joy and here's that, you know, one book about, um, loving my hair and, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I, I wonder if, if unfortunately some of us have to go through this type of struggle so that we can bring other people along with it. Right. I mean, if you, if you get to be successful, then someone behind you also gets to be successful. Absolutely. Cause I mean, I was thinking like, I mean, I wouldn't, I would gladly endure this if that means that, you know, people who are reading my book now will be able to be published someday and to be able to share the stories that they feel like they really want to share in their hearts, you know? Um, and I, I think about like the people who came before me, you know, and how hard it was for them, like James Baldwin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You know, like we, you know, we can just look at this Wikipedia page to, to realize how hard it was for him to get published, you know? Um, so certainly I, I agree with that statement. So what can, you know, in the same way of asking, what can people do to be better allies and anti-racism? What can people who are not in publishing do to help push these narratives that are multifaceted and diverse and not just feeding off of our pain simply to sell book copies? So when you say people in publishing... Outside you... of publishing. Mm -hmm. I guess I mean readers. I mean mm -hmm. um, advocates yeah. for other organizations you know i know that there's a there's a new book club that pops up every other day um but even within sure. our own even within our own circles i find that a lot of the work that we're doing right is um sort of dismantling the white supremacy in ourselves so we're also taking in a lot of this and i say mm -hmm. we as black people and mm -hmm. then even we sort of feel like well this is the thing that's going to get us through, you know, I just need to know all the parts and pieces of this oppression and then I can manifest past it. And if the publishing industry or if culture in general just wants black pain, right? Where's the past it? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously people are consuming it and people are consuming like the, the, these narratives, right? Like, I mean, there's a reason why the hate you give was on the new Times bestsellers list for like, two years at number one or something like that. Like, you know, it's, it was ridiculous. Like, because I mean, a, it was super like revolutionary for YA. Um, and it was a very important book, but people were consuming it because of, um, how timely it was related to police brutality and racism. And, um, even like the complex dynamics between like, you know, blackness and whiteness. Right. 
And because that's the theme that's explored in the hate you give. Um, and then dear Martin, you know, has been on the best sellers list so like on and off for the last like year or so as well. And so people are like consuming these books, but, and you, you won't see, you know, you won't see the books about like black or brown joy on there at all. Or if, if not, um, maybe like once, <laughs> once or twice. Um, and so I think, yeah, like I would encourage readers to like, because sometimes you have to actually seek them out because they're probably not coming out from like the major publishers. They're probably coming out from some of the, the smaller presses um, where those are oftentimes books that slip under the radar, radar because they're not like, again, as widely promoted as some of the bigger um, books and, and from bigger publishers will be. Um, unfortunately, like I, I do have a list, but I, of books that are coming out that I would recommend people check out. One would definitely be Black Boy Joy, obviously. Also, um, Blackout, yeah. which was co-written novel by, I think it's Nicola Yoon, Daniel Clayton, Angie Thomas, Nick Stone, Ashley Woodfolk, and I believe someone else. Maybe that's it. Or Tiffany D. Jackson, I think. Um, and so that one is about just a, a love story in, you know, featuring Black characters. And I'm sure that one's probably going to hit the list because of the names, <laughs> the names who are yeah, attached to that yeah. book. <laughs> um, but yes, like being intentional, like, it, you know, there's a certain level of intentionality you have to have, you know, when, when seeking out books about, you know, just the everyday, you know, person, you know, without having to prioritize books <laughs> about like pain and oppression. And again, I go back to the point of not prioritizing like black trauma and actually prioritizing just black life or brown life. Um, and if you have that kind of perspective and that kind of like mentality, yeah. you're able to see, you know, publishing, you're able to see the books that you're reading um, from a different lens and ask yourself, like, why, why am I only reading books about police brutality? You know, you know, why, why am I, why are the only books that I'm reading by marginalized creators are books about their pain? You know, why am I not reading their, their sophomore novels that have nothing to do with their pain? You know, um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that'd be a whole, um, <laughs> You know how they have reading challenges every year. I think so. You know, next year's reading challenge should be just read sophomore novels. Yeah. Because if you <laughs> move past that, you know, the first book that got them noticed, and then read right. their next thing, right? Right. Right. Because I mean, an unfortunate thing is like I I told my agent this, and she's like discouraged me from from feeling this way. Um, but I told her I was like I don't believe that things we can say will sell as well as. Tyler Jones was here. Like this book is constantly selling out because, I mean, obviously it's so timely, unfortunately. Right. Um, unfortunately, it's continually yeah, timely. Continuously, yeah, timely. Oh, I really would love like books about, you know, just the everyday, you know, like kid to, to sell as well as like Tyler Jones was here. But we'll see. <laughs> Do you ever see those, you know, lists? Like if you like this, you'll like that kind of thing. I wonder if those are the, the types of, hoops we have to jump through to yep. kind of get to this next stage of right. blackness just as as it is yeah you know that was one of the hard things i think that people whether it's inside publishing or literature or outside of publishing is this idea i'm in los angeles so there's this really big idea okay. about what what blackness is and who gets to be black enough and you yeah. know how you navigate that and so you as an author are, are saying that that's also the same thing you're navigating just with the characters you're creating, right. you know, and how do, do you, do you feel that it's easier with kids though? I mean, with children who may not, as an adult sure. being seen in my mid thirties <laughs> from a lot of these books that are coming out now feels uh, sure. transformative. Right. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering if these books being written for children now are going to give them the opportunity so that they don't have to go through that same trauma that we did as kids figuring out whether our blackness is acceptable or not. And right. mm -hmm. that's what I'm hoping. That's, I guess that's what I'm thinking is, is the work that you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. Making it so that it's, it's not, it shouldn't be transformative, right? It should just be, <laughs> Oh, this person looks like me or right. I get to read this book and it, it I'm, you know, relating to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, Nicola and David Yoon, I mean, they just released a, or they launched a, a publishing house and I believe it's called something like joy as a revolution or something like that. Um, <laughs> because I mean, literally like um, 
it almost feels like we need to have a revolution, you know, in the publishing yes. world to pursue, you know, the the lighter parts of ourselves, you know, where we're not, where we're kind of almost almost like not distancing ourselves from like um the trauma or the the pain that we express, but like not hyper focusing on it. Um yeah. and yeah. so I, I do think, yeah, like I'm excited for um unfortunately like the first time for for a young person to pick up my book and they and they see themselves like on the cover, but also like fortunately they feel like, gosh, I can do something like this someday. You know, I can write a book about just being myself, you know, without having to talk about like this really, really hard thing going on in our community, uh, whatever that community might be for them. And so yeah, I hope that readers like can see themselves like reflected, you know, like the nerdy black kid, you know, or the, the kid who likes rock music or the, the black kid who, you know, loves Star Wars, you know, like all, if, unfortunately, I feel like the media has like put stereotypes on a lot of our black boys, but also a lot of our black girls. And so my, I've been, been very like conscious and aware of that as I've been like writing and I've been trying to like at all costs, like try not to sustain or keep those stereotypes going in my books because I want yeah, readers to have a very like, yeah, I'm almost like, I, I guess you use the word transformative, like, like a, like a transformative experience with saying like, oh my gosh, like I can identify with this character, not just because they're black, but because they also like this other really nerdy thing, like anime or something like that. And so, um, there is Gia's little, little brother in this book actually is a huge anime, like nerd. And that was intentional because I'm like, gosh, I know so many black kids, you know, that I've taught who loved anime, you know, that was like their passion, you know, and that was all they wanted to talk about all the time. Um, but unfortunately I couldn't think of a single book that had, you know, a black kid character who loved anime. <laughs> and so I wanted to have that character in the book. So. <laughs> what I love listening to you talk is that you're you know, pointing to your posters and you're talking about <laughs> these characters as people. And mm-hmm. I want to know, um, not just if they're, a image of someone that you might already know, but how it feels to put these people onto paper um, for someone who feels like their writing isn't there yet. Or Mm -hmm. like, you know, how do you, um, how deep does your love and care for these characters go as you put these books into the world? Yeah, I mean, I love uh, my characters so much and they do feel really real. Um, obviously like both of these main characters are parts of myself. They're very different than I am in a lot of ways, but they're also similar to me in some ways. And specifically with things we couldn't say, um, Gio is the main character. And I don't know, like, as I was writing his story again, like I talked about how writing his story helped me fight out of like my depressive state that I was in after writing Tal Johns was here and after touring, um, with Tal Johns was here. So, I mean, Obviously, like I feel very, very attached to that story and to that book and those characters, partly because even like even in this really messed up way, like they're fictional, but they help me like grieve and cope, you know, like in, in a way that like I like battled depression and got out of that. You know, they were kind of like a beacon of hope in that way for me. Um, and so I in a way, I'll always be forever grateful for um, these fictional characters that feel really real, you know. They're like um, my book babies. So, <laughs> I'd say if you weren't in this genre, um, what you did say that you're not going to write for adults anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But do you have another genre that you're really passionate about that you could see down the line? Like, oh, maybe I'll do some poetry and prose, or maybe I'll, yeah. you know, nonfiction, a memoir, anything like that in your future. So yeah. So I um. So this is a middle grade book right mm-hmm. here. Um. I just finished writing my own middle grade book. I'm really excited to um, have that be out. Um, it, as someone who loves music, I got to write about a kid who loves music. Like he plays the violin and he composes music. You know, he po- composes symphony. Are you, do you play violin? <laughs> I play violin and I, oh. I almost went to music school, but I, oh. you know. So now I'm now I'm super like oh what yeah <laughs> yeah so I got to write like this middle grade story about this little boy who yeah just a super classical music nerd um you know and makes playlists of you know uh, black classical composers <laughs> you know got to you know bring some of those people to the light 
um, in that yeah. book. I'm really excited about it. Um, I also want to branch into maybe the nonfiction world uh, at some point as a person who has been clinging to like religion and faith over the last like <laughs> year with pain with this pandemic um, to help get through life. Um, maybe writing something about that later down the, the road would be something that I'd be interested in, in doing. Um, but no real plans to pursue that anytime soon. So I'm, I'm too swamped with <laughs> other, other things, but. <laughs> I, um, I would love to hear more about your integrating music into your work, maybe even integrating music into your writing routine. What are some of those things that you bring from, from your music background into your literature besides just the character you were talking about? Yeah. I mean, so music is very important to me. I love music. Um, music obviously tells stories and I love stories. Um, even music without words, I think tells stories. And so every time I, I sit at my desk and I prepare to write a new story, or if I'm working on a new chapter of a story or whatever, every time I sit down to write, I have to have music going. I try to like curate a playlist for whatever that the, the mood or the, the, the feel of that scene that I'm working on, like I want to capture. Um, and so there's a party scene and things we couldn't say. And I listen to a lot of like party music, you know, like songs that I, you know, danced to when I went to high school parties and things like that. Um, and then I had to do some research for well, what are high school is listening to now at, at their parties. Um, so I got to do that. It was really, really cool. But yeah, I, I believe that um, music is um, one of those things that really, really does help us kind of like understand the world around us in, in, in ways that sometimes are too deep for words or, you know, too deep to explain all of my characters, no matter what they seem to latch onto that idea. You know, they feel understood in, in music. Um, even if like music isn't something that they're like pursuing as terms of career, you know, they're like, Oh, music is still something that like helps them understand themselves or understand the world around them. And for Geo being a fan of Paramore and listening to Paramore a lot in the book, you know, he says multiple times, like, you know, that Paramore like understands him, like Paramore gets him. And I believe that to be true about myself too. Like some of the music that I listen to over and over again, like on loop, um, it just feels like an affirmation of myself listening to that, you know? And so for as long as I'm writing, I feel like music will continue to be a part of my, my writing because I, uh, I think that music is a part of who I am. Like I'm a composer. So I, I write, I compose music for bands and orchestras and choirs and, and, and people who reach out to me um, for commissions. That was actually my like origin. Like before I wrote my first book or anything, before I wrote a, a single short story, I, I wrote music. And so that was my introduction to storytelling was through music and composing classical music. So, <laughs> Did that feel like a smooth transition? I wrote music in college and um, <laughs> sort of moved away from it. And I don't feel like a writer. Like I, I don't have a, I don't have a book in me, but like I'm, I'm, deeply attached to literature and mm -hmm. the 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 feeling of being seen and i and i have that same feeling with music and i'm how do those two things connect for you it did feel smoother of a transition than i thought and even that word transition feels uh, funny because i'm still technically composing music just not as often because i'm so swamped in book deadlines <laughs> um but again like I believe both to be methods of telling a story that I deeply feel, you know, inside of me. Yeah. Like I'm just replacing like music notes with words. <laughs> um, essentially, I don't know if this is true. Like, I don't know the science behind this, but it feels like, you know, you're tapping into two different parts of your brain almost, you know, with writing or composing music versus writing a short story, writing a book even. And that's always like a really interesting experience with when you're sitting down and you're having to say, okay, well, I'm having to tap into like music J, you know, the music side of J right now, or I'm having to like write a, write a, um, a book or, or something like that. I'm tapping into like the author J. Um, and those two worlds see, for the longest time have been two of like separate, they've been separate worlds, but for this middle grade that I was referencing, um, that was the first time really that like, I've been able to combine the two. And what I mean by that is like, as a part of this middle grade book, I actually got to compose music that will show up in the book. Um, so 
really excited about that because it, I really have to blend those two passions together to make something um, that feels like a, like a, like a whole piece <laughs> um, uh, of myself. And so, yeah, I'm really, really thrilled for that to come out. We've been talking about potentially having like someone record the music and then release like a, a like a DV, like a CD um, with the book. Um, so some big, some big, big things happening. So, <laughs> yes, do that, please. I, I agree. Make that happen. <laughs> my last question for you, because I don't want to hold up too much of your time, but my last question is if you weren't doing any of this, you weren't mm-hmm. an author, you weren't a, a composer. Um, what, like, what is your alternate reality even look like? What would you be doing instead? Yes. Oh gosh. Um, so I would, probably back in the classroom, you know, I would, I'd probably be back uh, teaching young people um, because I just love working with them so much. I've also like in the last six months, for whatever reason, I've developed uh, a really, really big desire for counseling and therapy and helping people walk through really hard things. People in my life have affirmed that that's been a gifting of mine to, you know, to be someone who listens and can walk people through hard things. And so, um, yeah, maybe later down the road, I'll be counselor Jay. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm totally down for that too. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. so thankful and grateful that you uh, took some time out, but I really appreciate it. I appreciate. Thank you. So grateful. Yeah. So grateful. It was really a conversation. Um, I enjoyed this a lot. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, hopefully as things come down the line, you know, we'll have more chances to have more conversations Oops. and, you know, I love getting to know new authors and uh, oh. new to new to my wheelhouse more. Sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm still kind of new, you know, uh, this is only my fourth year in this, this publishing world. And it feels crazy to say four years, but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel you. Yeah, it, it, I think that it feels, it feels new until everybody else is, you know, there's the person behind you who says, oh, I'm right. doing this because I read such and such. And, you know, I know, I know that's happened already. Yeah. See? <laughs> like, oh. I wrote my book because I read Tyler Johnson was here. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> great. I love it. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Black and Bookish. If you'd like to learn more about our guest, you can pre-order Things We Couldn't Say wherever books are sold, and you can connect with Jay through his website, jcoleswrites.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Jay Coles. And you can find me, Antoinette Scully, on Facebook and Twitter at Black and Bookish, and on Instagram at Black and Bookish Blog. This episode was produced and hosted by Antoinette Scully. Our sound editor is John Scully, and our transcriptionist is Jessica Ladoska. Visit blackandbookish.com to subscribe to future episodes and to learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed.